0: All right, we're looking forward to Brother Mark Webb coming to us in our second session on uh, Christ is better than the angels. So Brother Webb, if you come. Glad to hear you, brother. Good to see you. Well, good morning to you. It's really good to be back here with you in Birmingham at this church and Renew Fellowship with you folks and with Brother Mark and to see some faces we haven't seen in a while. We've been in Wyoming since back first part of May and uh, just been back a couple of days and seeing some home folk. Brother Brian Daniels, the new pastor at Grace Bible, sitting back here. If you hadn't met him, good to see him. Barry Godwin, Barry hanging out back yonder, good to see you guys. And, uh, we haven't had a chance to connect with anybody. We've been in the wilderness. We came back to civilization. We're about ready to turn around and go back. I'm not. Sh- <laughs> I am not sure civilization's what it's cracked up to be. Just to be honest, uh, we've been practicing the six mile separation social distancing out in Wyoming, and. Uh, It's getting a little crowded here. But anyway, it is good to be back home. It's getting a little cold. I don't know what you were doing on Labor Day. Uh, We were shoveling snow. Six inches of snow hit that night. And uh, temperatures down below in the 20s through the week. So uh, it is sort of nice to get back to moderate, moderate temperatures. So anyway, good to be back here with you. My job is somewhat overwhelming i am certainly not capable under the best of circumstances to do justice to the subject that has been assigned to me and when i get to thinking brother carl had three verses that he was able to go through very uh, slowly and phrase by phrase i've got almost 10 times 28 verses to cover if i cover it like carl did we're in trouble now i've got all day I'm not sure you do, though, and so we've got to move very, very quickly, and if I don't, uh, and some of these topics are somewhat controversial, a lot of questions about them, if I don't answer them to your satisfaction, tough, okay? (laughs) Maybe we can discuss them later, but we've got to keep moving if we have any hope of getting through this passage. Let's read the passage first. Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to pick up in verse 4 speaking of the Son of God, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. You may remember we just read that, didn't we, out of Psalm 2. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth The first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. They shall all wax old, as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail." But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, And every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come of which we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see, not yet, all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Saying I will declare my thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham, wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. You will find throughout the book of Hebrews uh, comparative Words like more, much more, better. So for you rednecks down here in Alabama, I will simply say that what our writer is telling us is that Christ is more better than the angels. In fact, he's more better than the angels, more better than Moses, more better than Aaron, and so forth to the end of the book. That's basically the theme of the book of Hebrews. We want to look first at The angels. Now, we need to begin with the elementary thing here. What in the world is an angel? The word is interesting in that it does not of itself tell you the ontology of the creature or the being that it is speaking of. Now, but the ontology of something is the nature of something. The word angel does not describe a nature. It describes a function, a job description. The word angel simply means a messenger. And it means that both in the Hebrew, Malak, and Angelos in the Greek. It's just a messenger. And you have to, from the context, figure out exactly what is the nature of this messenger. We have, for instance, in the New Testament, one case where the messengers of John, you remember he's in prison, he sends his messengers to Jesus to ask, are you he or should we wait for another? You remember the text? And the word there is his angels. He sent his angels to ask Jesus this question. Now clearly in that context these are human men. But most of the time when the scripture and especially in our discussion today uses the term angel, it uses it in the sense that you and I are used to it. Speaking of a spiritual being, a heavenly being, in a sense a supernatural being of some sort. Angels that are usually unseen, invisible to our eyes. There's a whole range of expressions that are used to describe these beings. There's all different kinds of ranks of angels. For instance, in the Old Testament, you will find the word angel being used. You'll find the word powers, spirits, stars, sons of God, sons of God by creation, referring to the angels, throne creatures like cherubim, seraphim, all, all different kinds of ranks of angelic beings, spiritual beings in the unseen realm. When you turn to the New Testament, you generally find these spirit beings referred to, as in our text, by the word angel, but you'll also find references to demons, Spirits, evil spirits, Uh, we assume, and this may be an assumption, but I I would agree with it, that these are fallen angels, fallen spirit beings. You will find other descriptions, principalities, powers, mights, dominions, a whole range of angelic beings that the word angel seems to be the sort of overarching term. Now, why in the world are we talking about angels? Why is the writer of Hebrews, after we've had this wonderful introduction describing to us who the Son is, why then turn your attention for the next two chapters to the subject of Christ being better than the angels? What in the world does that have to do with anything? Well, what at the very least, it's telling us that there's a bigger picture to what's going on in the universe than just our little corner of the universe. There's other things happening in the universe, in the spiritual realm. We, we learn that from the book of Job, don't we? That here's Job on earth, but there is this heavenly moral universe up there in the heavens watching what happens, this contest, as it were, between God and Satan, and the focus is on Job, and he never, he never is privy to the information we are. He doesn't know. All he knows is he woke up one day, and man, everything went south in a hurry. Right? So there's bigger issues than just us and our own personal salvation. Now, that's important. But there's other things going on in the heavenly realms that are going to redound to the glory of God our Father. And it points us to our role in that. Carl put the Scripture, as it were, under a microscope. I'm going to have to put a telescope. We're going to have to back up. I'm going to try my best in the time that we have to give you the big picture. Biblical cosmology the big picture because that's what is being expressed here in this text may i point out to you that in the old testament we have yahweh this god who is infinite who is powerful all-knowing invisible but sometimes yahweh appeared in this mysterious personage called the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh. It's very difficult because uh, he will appear to Abraham. He will appear to Moses. He will appear to Joshua. And sometimes it's difficult for us to say, well, wait a minute, who exactly is Is this an angel? I mean, he came, remember the three men that came to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre? Two of them are clearly angels. They go on into." Sodom, remember. But one of them is addressed as Yahweh, as Jehovah. But he's in the form of a man. In other words, we have this mysterious personage in the Old Testament that sometimes appears in bodily form and is addressed as God and speaks as God. I mean, you can go back and study all these appearances, and it's very mysterious. I recently learned, I didn't know this, that in Second Temple Judaism, there, among, the among the Jews, they had this idea of two powers in the heavens. And it came from this appearance of the angel of Yahweh, that somehow there's two Yahwehs. Now they, weren't, uh, they didn't believe in more than one God, it was one Yahweh, but they were trying to get their minds around this idea of how is it that you have Yahweh who is invisible, who suddenly is visible? How do you explain these things? And by the way, by the 2nd century A.D., they announced this two powers in the heaven doctrine as heresy because I hope you can see what's coming that played right into the hands of the Christians because the Christians, their doctrine is simply that that angelic, now I use angelic not by nature but as messenger, this revelator of Yahweh who appeared at times as a man, has in fact now become a man. He's been incarnated as a man. And he is, as Brother Carl was telling us, the exact representation of Yahweh. He is the revelator of the person of God. It is a perfect revelation. To see him is to see Yahweh. And so he is the expression of the inexpressible God. Or to use more John's terminology of the word, He's the utterance of the unutterable God. He is the... Well, let's use Paul's language. He's the image of the invisible God. No man has seen God at any time but the only begotten of the Father who's in the bosom of the Father. He has exegeted. He has declared Him a perfect revelation of Him. But notice... That in our text, the concept that is being set before us is of this person becoming something. Now, I hope you see that in verse 4. He was made better than the angels. He obtained a better name than the angels. Notice that clearly we are not looking here at... The, at the Messiah in his role as second person of the Trinity. The second person of the Trinity doesn't get better. He doesn't get more. He doesn't get higher. He's already as high as you can get, as God. But in his role as Messiah, which is what is in view here, notice in verse 3, as Brother Carl pointed out, he's by himself, he's purged our sins. This is speaking of what the old theologians called the days of his humiliation when He came as a man, even though He is God, but in some sense He gave up the perks of divinity. You you know what perks are. Well, He gave them up. Because in His earthly role as the God-man, as the Messiah, He didn't function as God. He functioned as a man. And therefore, in this time of His humiliation, when He didn't come in His glory, In all the radiant splendor that we see elsewhere. But when he came as a lowly man. He's going to be made better. He's going to obtain something more than the angels. So we're clearly speaking of the God man. In his messianic role here. And that needs to be kept in mind. As we look at these citations from the Old Testament that follow in this chapter. And I wish we had time to look at everyone. Oh I do. You may not, but I do. We could look at them all very individually. But notice that we have seven Old Testament quotes here in the rest of this chapter. And my feeling is that all of these are speaking of him in his messianic role. Not as second person of the Trinity, not as the eternal Son of God, but as this one who has come into the world. In fact, notice in verse 6, again, when he bringeth the first begotten into the world. Notice, we're speaking of something that is happening in time, not happening in eternity. And these first three citations are speaking of him as being the Son, the begotten Son. Now that question has been debated over exactly what does that mean. You're probably familiar with the old doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son. Uh, I, I certainly I believe there is a distinction in the Trinity itself, between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that the Father can't be the Son, the Son can't be the... You know, the first person can't be the second person, so forth. That there is an order in the Trinity. It doesn't mean that one is less by nature than the other, but they have a functional distinction that seems to be true in the Trinity. However, what we're seeing here again is in Christ's messianic mission. He is being declared the Son of God. At his birth, Paul will quote in Acts 13, at his resurrection, he's the begotten Son. In other words, we have several references to this idea of beguiding as being the revealing of the Son. Paul will say in his introduction to the letter to the Romans that he was declared the Son by his resurrection. Didn't become the Son. But this declares him before the eyes of men as the Son of God. He becomes God's man seated on the throne. That's what we were reading in Psalm 2, right? Thou art my Son, this day I have begotten thee. That means this is the day of your enthronement. And those same words will be applied to Christ when he is enthroned in the heavens. As we look at these, and by the way, all seven of these citations come from the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. That's the Greek translation of the Masoretic text that we normally have translated in our King James. Again, we can chase that rabbit for the rest of the day, but let me just make that observation that if you look up these texts, especially the last one in verse 6, let all the angels of God worship Him, you will not find that in your Bible. But if you're reading from the Septuagint version, you find exactly those texts in two different places. Deuteronomy and over in Psalms. And let me just point out that that is an amazing phrase. Let all the angels of God worship Him. That we are placing the Son in a position that no other being in the universe can occupy. The position of God Himself. Because as Jesus made it clear in his temptation, when Satan came saying, bow down to me and I'll give you all this glory, Jesus replied, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. To worship a creature is idolatry. You remember John twice in the book of Revelation when the angel is revealing to him all of these visions, he falls at the feet of that angel and starts starts worshiping him. What does the angel say? Cut it out. Stop it. I'm one of your fellow brethren. Worship God. Don't worship me. But here we have the angels being commanded by God to worship the Son. That that is a a marvelous text. It reminds me of chapter 5 of John where Jesus says that the Father's will is that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. And so in some sense, to worship Jesus is not idolatry. We we sit here and sing all kinds of songs to the name and the glory of Jesus. Are we idolaters? Notice as we go on here, we have another section that deals with the reign of Christ, his throne, his kingdom being forever and ever. In other words, he is on the throne. In contrast in verse seven, his angels, who are spirits, are ministers. They're servants. You get the picture? He's reigning, their servants, and he's going to reign forever and ever. Now, if we had a Jehovah's Witness with us here today, you would raise an objection and say, okay, we, I see where you're going here. In verse 8, he's being called God, but you have to understand, and this is Jehovah's Witness doctrine, that he's not the big God, Jehovah, Yahweh. He's little God. He's the first created being, and then he created everything else. But the problem is, the very next citation out of Psalm 102 in verse 10, when he says, Thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth. If you go back to Psalm 102 and look at who is being addressed in that psalm, it's Yahweh, it's Jehovah, from first to last. And so when the writer says, Lord, he's using the same expression that the Hebrew writer used when he said, Lord, except in the Old Testament, that's Yahweh. So here is a psalm that is clearly being addressed to Yahweh, who is now being addressed to the Son. And notice that what is the subject of this citation is He's the one who has created the universe. Uh, let me ask you, we've got two classes of critters. We've got creators and we've got creatures. Which are you? Well, you're in the creature class along with your dog and cats and cows, horses, right? You're in the creature class. Well, who is in the creator? The creator of everything. How many beings can you have in the creator class who's created everything else? He alone is uncreated. Well, I've already answered it for you. You can only have one. And we ask ourselves, in these statements about Christ being the creator, in Without Him was not anything made. Remember John chapter 1 verse 2? Over and over again. He's the one who has created all things. He is being placed in this unique, one and only, creator class. He's the creator. Through Him, God created all things. So you see the distinction. He is clearly being identified with Jehovah. And so we sum this up at the last of chapter 1. Is he's the one who has been told by God to sit at his right hand until all his enemies are put under his feet. Angels, on the other hand, are ministering servants sent forth to minister to them who shall be the heirs of salvation. We'll get into that in just a minute. But notice the distinction. He's on the throne. They're ministers. I'm sort of remembering the old Tarzan movies. You don't remember that? You know, me, Tarzan... You, Jane. Well, you understand what you're being told. Him, Creator. You, creature. Him, Lord. You, servant. That's the distinction that is being set before us. He is superior to all else. Now, as we turn the corner into chapter 2, I want you to notice this contrast in the first three verses. He's telling us that you better pay attention to what's going on here. Because if the Word... I'm going to give you the short version of the contrast. If the Word spoken by angels, when you ignored it, got you in a heap of trouble. How much more trouble are you going to get into when you ignore the Word of the Son? That's the contrast. And it's, it's stretched out over these three verses. But the idea is, is that the word of angels was authoritative. You were punished if you disobeyed their word. Of how much sore punishment are you going to be worthy of when you ignore the message, the word of the Son, which came to you and I through them that heard Him. That's the apostolic ministry. So, notice the contrast. The word of angels versus the word of the Son. The message from angels the message from the Son. Now, what's he talking about? Why would you bring this up? Well, do you realize that the Scripture hints, and we're sort of connecting the dots, following the cookie crumbs here, that what we call the law was actually the testimony given through angels. Now, I see some of you looking like, where'd this fool come from? He said, where would you ever find that? I don't remember that in the description of God giving the law to, to Israel. Well, there are a couple of places where you will see that. Uh, back in Deuteronomy, you will find a citation that the Lord came to Sinai with 10,000 of His saints. It, the word means His holy ones. And clearly, it's not talking about Israel. It's not talking about human Companions is talking about the angels who are accompanying him at Mount Sinai. Psalm 68 talks about the chariots of God, or 20,000, even thousands of angels, it said, and it speaks of them coming at Mount Sinai. So there's a couple of Old Testament references that speak of angels being there present at Mount Sinai. But where in the world would we get this notion that the law of Moses, which is clearly what is being contrasted here, the law of the word of angels, with the gospel, the message that came from Christ, where did they get this notion that the law came through angels? Well, we find three places in the New Testament where this idea is being expressed. I want you to go to the book of Colossians for a moment. Colossians chapter 2. While you're going to Colossians, I want to quote for you or remind you of the tail end of Stephen's sermon, right before he was martyred. In Acts chapter 7, he talks about which of the prophets haven't you persecuted? Now you've slain the just one. Who have received the law by the disposition of angels, and have not kept it. Notice that Stephen is alluding to something that apparently he expected his audience to understand you have received the law by the disposition through the means, the medium of angels, and you haven't kept it. Did I say Colossians? I meant Galatians. Can't y'all read my mind? (laughs) Galatians, I'm sorry. That's the first mention of the law coming through angels. Here's the second one. In Galatians chapter 3, again, Paul is contrasting the difference between the promise that was given to Abraham and the law that is given to Israel. And he's basically saying that the law, you know, it seems like these two things are working across purposes. I mean, the promise was blessing is going to come, right? Blessing through your seed. The law, he just got through telling us earlier in chapter 3, curses you. So wait a minute. What's what's going on here? Well, he's going to explain that the law, which came after the promise 430 years later, cannot annul the promise. It's, a, it's like a, a covenant, like your mortgage. You sign it, once you everybody signs it, it's set in stone. can't be altered. So then that raises the question, well, why in the world then did God give the law? That's a big question, but let's look at Paul's answer. Galatians 3, verse 19. Wherefore then serveth the law? In other words, we're not off the wall to ask that question. Paul asks it. He says, It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was ordained by God. I'm sorry, it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Here again is a reference to the law coming through angels. Angels. Oh man, I want to chase that rabbit so bad because what this is telling us is that the law was temporary. The law was an addendum. Notice the words added till. The law was not, the law of Moses, this Mosaic system was not the original system. It did not mean you didn't have any moral law before then. It just meant that this wasn't the original thing. It was added and notice it has an expiration date on it added till the seed should come, till this seed that's going to bring blessing, Jesus Christ. So notice that the law is sort of like the parenthesis in the Old Testament. But notice again, it came through angels. And he goes on to talk about how then we are subjected to this system that treated us like children, like kids at elementary school, that we're dealing with elementary things, we're being imposed, these elementary principles upon us we'll, we'll get to that in a moment but let us go back to our text for a moment first of all now do you understand why he sets up this contrast between the word spoken by angels the law and this word that came through christ the gospel it, it's the same contrast we see in john chapter one the law came by moses grace and truth Came by Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean there's no grace in the law or no law in the grace, but it means that these two systems, one came through Moses, one through Christ. Philip Hughes, I would highly recommend his commentary on the book of Hebrews, best one I found. And he has a footnote uh, on this verse we're looking at in chapter 2. He says, It appears that God gave the law to angels, who gave the law to Moses, who gave the law to Israel. And I would say, yeah, it appears to me that's exactly what's going on. And so we have this revelation of God. God speaks. But it's an arm's length transaction. It goes through two mediators. Through angels and Moses before it gets to Israel. Okay? So notice that. What the writer is clearly saying is the gospel is superior to the word spoken by angels, to this revelation that has come through him. And you say, wait a minute, in in the law of the word of God, how could one word of God be more superior than the other? Well, let me ask you this. Would you agree that there is a message that the heavens are declaring, the stars, the glory of God? Would, Would you not believe that there is this thing Paul refers as natural light? There's a natural revelation of the greatness and glory of God that comes to you and I just through creation? what Paul is expressing in chapter 2 of Romans. Well, that's the Word of God, right? That's the message that comes from God. But would any of us say, well, that's the clearest revelation. That's the greatest revelation. That's the highest. The final revelation is what you can see of God by staring at the stars. Now, no no one would be so foolish as to say that, would we? In the same sense, we could say it's very much like that parable of the tenant farmers you know, the, ma- the owner sent his servants to collect the rent and they wouldn't pay up. And then he sends his son and they say, let's kill him. Then the vineyard will be ours. In other words, it's one thing to deal with the servants. It's another thing to go messing with the son. And that's the contrast that's being set up here. It's one thing to ignore the message of these messengers, these angels, but to ignore the message of the son, do it at the peril of your eternal soul. Look at verse 5. For unto the angels has he not put in subjection the world to come of which we speak. What do you mean the world to come? Clearly he's talking about, by the way, the word here for world, Aquamania, I believe, is the inhabitable earth. It's the earth. In other words, he's talking about the eschatological new earth. There is a world to come, and he's saying it's not put in subjection to angels, which implies that this present world is in subjection to angels, doesn't it? Why would you say that? In other words, we are in a situation where angels are the dominant forces. And I I don't mean greater than God, but you understand what I'm talking about. That there are powers that are the rulers of the darkness of this world. Okay? There are powers that are influencing things on this earth. We're constantly being told, trust the science. How many times have you heard that? I'm aside I was trained as a physicist. I, I was trained as a scientist. But my friend, I know there are other things going on in this world than what you see in science. Amen. Science doesn't have all the answers. That's what we're being told to trust. But there's other entities. There's other powers. There's other things calling the shots. And we're wrestling, says Paul, against these unseen, invisible forces. That's who our warfare is with, not with flesh and blood. So notice that we have a world now that is under subjection to angels. There's a world to come that's not going to be put under angels. Well, who is it going to be put under? And the the writer here then goes to Psalm 8 to answer. A very strange place. Go to Psalm 8 to answer that question. In Psalm 8, he begins to quote in verse 6, What is man that thou art mindful of him? The son of man that thou visitest him. In other words, what's so important about man? Who are we? Why would God give us the time of day? Why would he even think about us? He says, you made him a little lower than the angels. The word little, both in Greek and Hebrew, can mean a little space. And most of the time, we understand this like that. We're a little order of being, a little less than an angel. But that's not the way it's being used here. It it can also mean a little time. For a little while. For a little while you made man lower than... You say, well, why would you say that? Because of what follows. Because what follows is God's ultimate purpose for man. It is to crown him with glory and honor and to set him over the works of your hands and you have put all things in subjection under his feet. In other words, your ultimate destiny for man is to exalt him above the angels. For a little while, we're lower than the angels, under subjection to angels, under their dominion. But God's ultimate purpose in that world to come, that new heaven and new earth, is that He will exalt humanity over the angels. Paul writes to the Corinthians when they're squabbling and saying, don't you got anybody in your group that can judge this thing? Don't you know we shall judge angels? Now, how many of you knew that? I'm keep I keep thinking 99 of a hundred Christians today, if you told them, don't you know you're gonna judge angels? They say, What? What are you talking about? Paul expected the Corinthians to understand that. There's a world to come when you're gonna be on top, not the angels. All things are gonna be and notice the the fact in verse eight that he emphasizes the all, without exception, all things are going to be put under your feet. Nothing's going to be like, that. Means not just birds and cows and hopefully fleas and mosquitoes, <laughs> but angels are going to be put under your feet. Mankind for a little while is under angels. He is going to be exalted above the angels. And he goes on to say, we don't see that yet, do we? I don't see Brother John down here crowned with glory and honor. If this is glorification, I need to rethink my theology. John. (laughs) But there's coming a day. And what the writer says, we haven't yet seen all mankind exalted, but we have seen one man, the God-man. For a little while, he was made lower than the angels. Now, what, what, what is he talking about? What does Paul say in Galatians? He was born of woman made under the law. He was placed for a little while under angels. For a little while. But now we see that he is crowned with glory and honor. He is seated on the throne And he is now being described as the captain of our salvation, bringing many sons to glory. He's going to bring a whole bunch of us to where he is. I I love this figure. Again, we have this ranch out in Wyoming, and uh, you probably know a little bit about the Oregon Trail the pioneers took across the country, either going to Oregon or to California or Utah. And uh, the north road of the Oregon Trail cut right through the corner of our ranch. Between the years about 1850 and 1870, probably over 100,000 pioneers cut right through our ranch on their way west. I'd just like to sit out there sometime and just visualize that scene. All these, they called them immigrants. They're passing through. Wyoming wasn't a destination. It was a place to try to survive and get through it. And so all of these people are passing along. But the first ones, these old mountain men, men like Jedediah Smith, Jim Bridger, they're the ones who discovered South Pass. They're the ones who discovered how you could get a wagon over the Continental Divide. You see, they had to blaze the trail. They had to open the path. And after that was discovered, then you have this flood of immigrants coming in their wake and in their train. Jesus is being described to us here as the one who is blazing the trail. He's at the head of the train. He's bringing many sons to glory. Uh, I'm already frustrated because time to quit. I had not even got started good. Well, let me try to at least cover. He goes on to speak of the fact of Christ presenting his family. He's not ashamed. I, I, every time I read this verse, I, I'm just amazed. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. He was given a task to bring many sons to glory. He was given a family to save. And He's going to present every single one of them before the throne of God. He's not going to lose a one of them. The ones He was sent to save. Every one of them are going to make it to their death on the Oregon Trail, ten to twenty percent of them died before they ever got to where they were going. Jesus is not going to lose one of them; they're all going to make it, and he is going to present us as his brethren, as his family, before the throne of God with exceeding joy. Look what I did! He has opened the way; he has blazed the trail for us to follow. He destroyed the works of the devil. The devil had us. I mean, come on. Let's say it, you know. I, I'm convinced that what all was going on in the garden was God had somehow leaked this information to him that mankind's fixed. Yeah, he's under you right now, but he's going to be exalted above you. And Satan managed to bring mankind under the bondage of sin and death. And basically saying to God, let's see you do it now. Because see, God, you got one of two options here. You can either fulfill your purpose and raise man to this glorified position, and ignore, become a liar. You said, "The day he eats thereof, that shall surely die." You know, you can either do that, or you cannot do it. And I've beat you. I've thwarted your purpose. I have managed to prevent your plan from succeeding. It seemed like a perfect plot. A catch-22, whichever way God goes, I got him. Unbeatable checkmate. And then out of left field comes a solution that the devil never saw coming. He who was God of very God becoming man. And as a man, going and suffering, living a righteous life, and then going to a cross. Earning life under that law. The law, you remember, said, keep me, keep me all of me, keep me always, I'll give you life. Here's one who'd earned it. Everybody else failed. But here's the one man who earned life and then laid down that life for our sake. Took our sin and gave us His life. Satan never saw it coming. He never had a chance. (laughs) Had the princes of this world known the wisdom of God, says Paul, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What they thought was their triumph cut the rug right out from under them. I'm going to stop there and just make a couple of observations I want to ask you, how do you spot an angel? How do you spot an angel? Some have entertained angels unaware. Apparently, they can look just like us to the extent that we don't know when they're angels and when they're not. But I'm not talking so much about that. I, to my knowledge, I've never seen an angel. I've talked to a few folks folks who think they have. I think we got places for folks like that in general. i uh, not trying to make any judgments here, but... Uh, I'm, I'm asking it in another, another way. How do you know when you're under angelic rule instead of being under the rule of the Son? You, you understand that what went along with angelic rule was being in subjection to a system that worked on the basis of legalism. And I began to make the observation, I've tried to study the culture and religion of the Plains Indians out where we are. You can read about religion all over this world, thousands of religions, but you know what they all have in common? They're all legalistic. And when I mean legalistic, I don't mean they just have rules, that's not it, but it works by what we call quid pro quo. I remember teaching Job and using that expression 15 years ago, nobody knew what I was talking about. Today, everybody knows what that means, right? It's a Latin term. Something for something. It's a language of trade. It's a language of commerce. It's the language of contracts. Lawyers will tell you, unless you've got something for something, you haven't given something. Both parties giving. You don't have a contract. And that's the way the law worked. It was a legalistic system. Oh, I know. There was some grace in there. But at its heart, I don't know how else to understand Paul's language that... The law is not of faith, but the man who doeth them shall live in them. In other words, you can't just get to heaven by the law just because you think it's a great idea. You've got to do it. And then you not only have to do it once, you've got to do it all, and you've got to do it always. And that's why Paul says, Cursed is everyone that is under the law. You don't have a prayer if the law is your prayer. The law wasn't given so you could be justified. It was given to show you that you can't be justified. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in His sight. So the one thing that all angelic religion, and I believe fallen, these religious systems, are all angelic. I mean, some of them claim that. Look at Islam. Muhammad. where'd this thing come from? what did he say? Angel... Gabriel came and gave it to me. Joseph Smith, where'd you get your religion? The angel Moroni showed up. Told me about those plates. I give him the benefit of the doubt. You say, but this came by an angel. I don't care. That's what our text is telling us. If we or an angel from heaven preaches any other gospel to you, let him be accursed. But angelic religion also works by stokeia. It's the Greek word for these elemental principles. Paul speaks of it in Galatians that you're under these elemental principles. You're Colossians. Don't let anybody judge you in respect of meat and drink, holy days, Sabbath days, all these physical things. You think about what is common to all the religions of the earth. They all have their holy places. They have their holy temples, they have their holy men, they have their holy rituals. I mean, every religion has that. I've stood at Uxmal in the Yucatan looking at this huge pyramid. You've probably never even heard of the place. Gigantic! On the scale of the temple in Jerusalem, every bit as massive. You haven't even heard of it. And those temples are all down through the Yucatan where the Mayans worshipped. You can find temples in Mexico City where the Aztecs worship. You can find them down in the Incas in Peru. All over the place. They all had their holy spots. Their holy buildings. Their holy sacrifice. Holy men. Holy foods. Holy dress. They literally wore the religion on their sleeve. Those are those stokea. That's the evidence of angelic religion. And it's what's common to all. And Israel had its holy place. Its holy mountain. Its holy temple. Right? And at the well with the woman in Samaria, when she's wanting to know, I've got to solve this. I've got to know which mountain to go to if I want to go to God. What does Jesus say? The hour is coming now. Is when that's, that's not even going to be a question. It has nothing to do with those physical things. You are no longer under those things. And Paul will write to the Colossians, Why? As though living in the world, are you subject to these ordinances. And he says, Don't let anybody rob you of your inheritance by voluntary submission to angels. Where did that come from? How do I voluntarily submit to angels? When you place yourself under this angelic system and under these angelic principles. You're made for better things. You're made for a new heaven and a new earth. You're supposed to be practicing for that day instead of living for this day. That's about the only thing that gives me hope anymore when I look at the mess this world is in. The older I get, the more I yearn for that new day to come. Please forgive my speed and trying to brush through this so quickly but oh I hope you get a little of my passion for this subject I think this is extremely important and you say well what does this have to do with the rest of the book do you see now everything that follows falls out of this. this is the big deal you prove this and all the rest that follows in the book of Hebrews just follows as the logical consequence of what these chapters are stating father we give you thanks for this word and this encouragement that no matter how tough our journey is right now when we're on the trail that we have this confidence that we shall one day overcome and we shall one day stand with our our savior in glory this captain of our salvation the one who causes us to triumph Let us have our eyes set on that day to come. Let us not get bogged down in the vexations of this present life, but may we see what awaits us in glory. May we observe the warning that we let this message not slip away. Father, let us not miss the big show, that big day that is coming. And thank you that you've taken a bunch of sinners deserving hell And you've turned us into saints, pilgrims on our way to glory. Thank you for such a Savior who came and did these things for us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.